So uh, last week, there was actually so few people here uh, at the church we, that I decided just to do the same thing we did last week over again. Because, let's see, who was here last week that heard this? Anvesh and Deanna, Susanna, who else? Steven, and that's about it, right? Byron, that's right, Byron. Byron, after he got done talking to Sid. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, so, um, I'm very big on, uh, you know, the mo- many of the best years of my Christian life, you know, one of the things that, um, let's just back up and say this. The Bible talks about, uh, we, we use the term elders in modern times, Right? But if you were here last year when we went through all the biblical terms for various leadership position, from priest, where we studied that actually all Christians are priests, the priesthood of us. And we went through uh, things like uh, deaconess, shepherd, uh, overseers, etc. The two words that are most clearly uh, what describes what we, what most churches that have an eldership system used today. um, Deanna, you want to take my phone and just, I, uh, yeah, so um, just turn off the, turn off the ringer and just take care of it. You tell them that that's, that's okay. I'll just talk with John tomorrow night. I forgot it was Jason's birthday tomorrow. I'm trying to schedule, schedule him for a meeting tomorrow night. Um, nobody wants to have an elders meeting on their birthday. Is that a surprise party? Yeah, change it to a surprise party. We wouldn't be able to get him to come. <laughs> you have to get. It, it really ruins the surprise party if you can't get the person to actually show up. <laughs> yeah. We can still party. That's right. Yeah, we'll still party without you. All right, so um, so the Greek words episkopos, which we get bishop from, and presbyteros, which we get Presbyterian form of government for, are, are normally translated uh, in most New Testaments overseer. But it's because part of what the word means is just someone who has uh, more experience and greater perspective, but especially more of God's perspective. Because life is actually a war for perspective. So one of the things that um, if you've, one of the joys of raising children is when, when people are immature, they're very immediate in their emotions. So, you know, like when, like someone, let's not, let's not talk while I'm, while I'm doing this. So, um. So, like, if, uh, for instance, if somebody like Daniel Gray skins his knee, like, it's like the end of the world. Like, ah, he's screaming and everything like that for, but then he's, like, fine in three minutes. Because, like, when you're emotionally immature, you have no perspective to uh, process your emotions and realize, you know, that's one of the things I began to teach myself when I was 17 and 18, just getting walking with the Lord is, in the middle of situations, ask yourself, am I going to laugh about this 20 years from now or to even two years from now? You know, for instance, uh, you know, I get to do a lot of weddings as a pastor. And um, unlike on Vash and Deanna's wedding, there, most weddings have something go wrong. 
<laughs> and it's usually, although they probably had some things go wrong I didn't know about. But they're usually kind of funny. Like in my brother's wedding, his uh, one roommate brought two left shoes and uh, instead of a, a pair of shoes. And they weren't even anywhere near a pair. One was a platform type shoe and the other was... So he looked like he... And uh, the, this one grandma that we knew like went like, I feel so sorry for that poor crippled boy. Because, <laughs> you know... And because uh, he was he was one of the ushers in these shoes that were different heights, <laughs> and, uh, and it was just too far to go. We were seventy five miles away, and by the time it was discovered, there was no way to go back there and get them. And uh, so there's always something like that. And then so you just tell yourself, you know, we're all going to laugh about this. My one brother uh, was the only one who somehow his pants for with the tuxedos didn't come in. And they were all hippies. This was his hippie friends, and I was friends with some of the guys myself. But uh, they, uh, so he wore, they all wore tuxes, except he wore tuxes and blue jean cutoff shorts. <laughs> and even the wedding pictures have, have like the whole, all the groomsmen in their tuxes, except one guy's wearing blue jean shutter with a tux top, you know? <laughs> so, and then I, I've been in weddings where they forgot the rings, so they just tried to fake it so the audience wouldn't know they were <laughs> going, just going like this. So anyway, uh, the point is that um, overseers, ha uh, part of what they're s supposed to do is have some perspective. And of course, God has the eternal perspective. One of the things you have to remember when you're doing spiritual warfare is that when you're dealing with, uh, say, Satan and demons and so forth, they've been in the spiritual dimension 5,000 years. You know, Sydney's been a Christian for a while, but I'm pretty sure it's not near 5,000 years. And uh, you know, some of you might think I've been around 5,000 years, but it's not been that quite that long. <laughs> you know? So anyway, I've, you know, I've walked with the Lord 43 years, and the first thing that I addressed in my Christian walk were basically, were after you know, the initial first few months, you get delivered from drugs and you get demons cast out of you and you get baptized in the spirit and you're reading the bible like 10 times through and you're on all on fire and i began to realize you know here are the major character flaws of my life uh one of them was just discipline and uh i can you know like a lot of you know that i read the book the discipline life every year for the first 10 years i was a christian because uh my older brothers and sisters had uh, pointed out to me, Greg, you're, you have all this promise, but you start music, you start a sport, whatever, but you never pay the price to become excellent. When it, when it gets down to that level, you always quit. And so I just became sort of almost neurotic about not quitting. And by the grace of God, that has served me well over the years to develop that. You know, I worked on that habit of not quitting for 10 years. And uh, I, if I read, was reading a book and halfway through the book I realized I shouldn't have ever read this book. It's not that good. I would still finish the book because I just didn't want to quit something I started, <laughs> you know. And uh, now I don't do that. But uh, now I have lots of books I don't finish. So hopefully there will be some benefit from going through this in that if there's any one thing that has characterized my Christian life, the most fruitful years I've ever had, I've usually been able to somehow around Thanksgiving time, step away from a lot of responsibilities and, uh, and start back into them the first week of January. How's it going, Kyle? Pretty well. 
Yeah, come on down that way, I'd say, to that corner if you can. They're making a spot for you down there by Dean and on Bash, or oh, by Jeff and Austin. I've sat next to Austin several times. He's never smacked me in the middle of the message. <laughs> yeah, only after. One time with I was a single guy. I forget what happened, but I had to I had to share a uh, like a queen size bed for a night with a guy. And when the alarm went off, I forget. One of us punched the other one in the face. <laughs> I can't remember who punched who. <laughs> I chose to forget that one. I don't remember, actually. I think I punched him, but oh well. I also threw my alarm clock across the room once. <laughs> when, it, when it went off in, the, in my college days. All right, so, um, you know, the years that I have... Uh, had a tendency, hey, house is in the house. Uh, <laughs> how you doing, Elizabeth? So the years that I've uh, had the most fruitful, productive years have been the years that I've spent the most time seeking God about goals and getting them on paper and being faithful to have some sort of structure whereby I reevaluated the goals on a regular basis. Does everybody hear that? So I actually don't care if you were here last week because I'd have to say, like, did, have you really spent that much time on your goals since last week? <laughs> so maybe you have, maybe you haven't. Um, but one thing you ought to do is always walk through your goals with somebody uh, qualified to help you evaluate them. Because some people will set goals that are unrealistic. Some people you know, we'll set goals too low. Like if you're going to try to lose 40 pounds and then you said, well, the way I'm going to go about it is I'm going to give up the Marchino cherries on my hot foot Sundays. That's probably not going to get you to 40 pounds. <laughs> Unless you eat a lot of Marchino cherries. <laughs> Marchino or how do you say that? Mar Mar Maraschino. Maraschino. Yeah. They're poison. Anyway, terrible for you. Yes. <laughs> I've had a few. So let's just start by, uh, we'll do our usual right to left. We'll skip, skip Josiah since he's the recording person. We'll start with uh, Morgan, and let's uh, have Morgan do Luke. Jane do Philippians. Uh, Amber do 1 John 3, 2 and 3. Uh, Daniel do 1 Timothy 1, 5. Uh, except make it in the context of verses 3 through 7. And then uh, Bethany do 1 Corinthians 9, uh, 25 through 27. That would make uh, Su Susanna, Galatians 5, 17, and uh, Byron, Philippians 3, 18 through 20, and then we'll reorganize after that. Okay, so let's just read those scriptures. Read them, uh, t say the name of the scripture, like give the reference, what translation you're reading from, and then feel free if you're if you have an alternate translation that uses an alternate word that you feel would really bring something of insight to the discussion. You can shout that out when they're done. All right. So first, our Luke thirteen thirty two. Okay. 
By the way, in most cases, they, if, they're, if it doesn't list the translation, generally they're usually in the New American Standard, of, on the sheets anyway. Luke 32, 32? 13, 13, 32, of ESV translation. And he said to them, go and tell that fox, behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course. Finish my course. And, of course, NASB says reach my goal. All right, Jane? Okay, uh, Amber. Start on verse one, actually. So let me comment on that one so I don't forget the train of thought and then Daniel can go next. But, you know, sometimes we read Scripture quite wrongly. One of the things I always noticed is because we are, read it so seriously, when Jesus tells sarcastic jokes, we have a tendency to, to, to miss the jokes. But, you know, like he tells the Pharisees, is it, is it, is it righteous to do good on the Sabbath day? You know, that's kind of sarcastic. Um, and he's trying to be sarcastic. And he calls, of course, James and John, he nicknames them the Sons of Thunder. Now, a lot of people speculate it's, it had to do with the incident where they asked if they should call, if, you know, they should call fire down on, on the city that rejected them, but they're not necessarily tied to, to, to each other in Scripture. So it's just uh, a guess. But we don't know why he called them the sons of thunder, but that'd be a pretty good reason, I'd guess. So, you know, uh, so sometimes we, if we could just step back and think about something from a different way. So instead of, when, it, when he says, everyone who has this hope purifies himself as he is pure, sometimes it's good to ask yourself, do, how much hope do I have in my Christian life? Instead of just like laying on your, like the standard rate way would be to read it as an exhortation to yourself. Like, okay, when we see Jesus, we're going to be like him. I should exhort myself to, to purify myself more. But actually, he's actually offering a, uh, like a diagnostic tool to, to help yourself see how much hope you have. And hope is something God wants to help you with. We always take, uh, you know, we, uh, we tend to, because our fallen nature has a very ungracious view of God, part of the journey into the, in the Christian life is to come into a more gracious understanding that he has come to save us, as you know, Zephaniah says. And if he wanted to rub your face in it, there would have been no point to bring Christ. So he's not just saying try harder. He's actually saying, listen, come to the place where you realize you can't just try harder and come to me for your faith, for your hope, for your love. You know, and so um, that, if you can help see that, I love, I love the, uh, I always forget if this is Samson's parents or Samuel's parents, but the one that um, the husband that says, woe is us because we've seen the angel of the Lord and the wife says, well, if he had wanted to kill us, he would have. <laughs> which would is that Samson's? Yeah. I always forget which story is which because they're such similar stories. But um, I love that because it's like, you know, like she just takes a different perspective. Like the, 
you know, all through the Bible, whenever an angel appears or something, everyone is terrified, and the angel has to start with, like, don't be afraid. <laughs> you know, like, I didn't come to kill you. <laughs> you know, and uh, so in that we have this tendency to think that, you know, God is this big bad guy, and we don't measure up, and he just wants to slap us around. But if, if we had that already after the fall of man. If, if he had wanted to be that way toward us, he would have never sent Christ in the first place. And he's come to give us everything that pertains to salvation, and that includes our hope. So use that as a way of diagnosing, do I have hope? Like, do I have this compelling desire to purify myself and to become more Christ-like? If I don't, it's okay. Tell the Lord that. And he'll give you more. Okay, so that I wanted to comment on that before we got away with it. Dan, from it. Chapter 1, 3 Yeah. 1 Timothy, chapter 1, 3 As I urged you in vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertion. Now, the NASB in verse 5, the ESV says the aim instead of the goal, but those are pretty similar words, right? Of, and then NASB says instruction, whereas ESV says charge. Who knows what a charge is? A, a, a charge is part of every wedding I do. Something accounted to you? Uh, no, no. It's more like an exhortation. An exhortation. It's like, you know, on Vash, I want you to be a great husband, you know, and do the love Jesus, do this, that, the other, and so forth. And um, so... You know, I always have three um, parts of the wedding that are not scripted, you might say, uh, is completely in, in, in the sense of the, you know, the vows are written by, by all, I, the vows we use, I took every Christian group I could find vows throughout the centuries and compared them and made them as complete as possible. Uh, but, you know, certain traditions like the Anglican tradition have probably contributed the most and so forth but um, but I always have a pastoral commendation which I, I don't always give like sometimes I'll invite a guest pastor who knows this couple really well to, to do that uh, basically in other words why is this couple uh, ready to be married do you know that that's kind of a weird thing in our church but I don't if I don't think the two people are mature enough to get married I don't I don't usually do the wedding only made an exception to that a couple times in my life. So, why? Because the Bible says, let marriage be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed be undefiled. And the best way to keep marriage honorable is to make sure people who are really mature and honorable enter that institution. And that's why, you know, Catherine and I's happiest thing that we're happy about in the history of our ministry is that all the couples we married, there's never been a bad marriage, let alone anything close to a divorce. And most of the weddings we've done are way more than 30 years now. Quite a few more than 40. So, well, a lot, of, a lot more more than 30 than 40. Just a few 40. But isn't that cool? You know, like, you know, that's a different approach. But, um, now I make exceptions. You know, I've done a couple relatives or that sort of thing. But not that often. Um, 
so the goal or our instruction versus the aim, a charge is kind of like, you, you get charges a lot when, when people are ordained, you know, or when people uh, are promoted to an officer of some kind in the military. You know, part of the, uh, part of the swearing in ceremony of the President of the United States is, is usually a charge. So that's that's good. Is anybody any other translations got other words than for aim or goal or charge or instruction? So it, you know, I, I haven't looked at the Greek word there for charge or instruction, but I have a feeling it has an exhortative uh, admonishment or or at least an exhortative uh, context of like you know go further, jump higher, <laughs> you know, or your PF flyers. No, <laughs> you know, does that make sense? Any other translations bring out a cool word that you that anyone else is using? New King Jimmy says commandment. Commandment, the goal of our commandment. Purpose of the commandment. Purpose of our commandment. So purpose instead of goal or aim, and commandment. That Greek word is telos. What's that? Telos. No, oh, the Greek word there for aim is telos. Yeah. Ooh, that's very good. Talk about that in a minute. Because maybe not everyone tell us more. Oh my gosh. <laughs> very punny. <laughs> uh, uh, tell, us, uh, tell us about telos. Uh, well, teleology is the study of the purpose or uh, the goal or the aim of things. Exactly what the, the word is. So, like, what's not just like what things are, but what is the reason behind it and why they're doing it and uh, almost like the being of it of what's going to happen and why. Right. So if I were to say, uh, what's, what do we know from, based on Scripture uh, of the telos of the marriage relationship, what would, you, uh, what would you say? What's that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, through dying to self daily, you are to... To the, a marriage is a metaphor of a much bigger reality, the love of Christ for his church. Mm-hmm. And so it's a, a subset of some greater reality. One of the greater realities that marriage is a subset for is Christ and his church. Right? Mm-hmm. There's another one that's very scriptural. Reproduction, having children that will... Well, that's a purpose of marriage. But what's the greater eternal mystery that, that marriage is, is supposed to represent? The church's obedience to Christ. Yeah, we've said that one. That, yeah, that's one. The, the unity of who? The Trinity. Right. Marriage is supposed to be, remember, and even the body of Christ is supposed to. All, all human relationships redeemed in Christ the goal is to become like the, the, the greater reality of the Trinity, right? Like a family should look like the Trinity. Now, because of the fall of man, some of our Christian families are more godly and mature and less dysfunctional than others. But the goal is that it would be like the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit in the community. What, and so, actually, what's a single brother's household supposed to be like? The Trinity. What's a single sister's household supposed to be like? Awesome. The Trinity. <laughs> uh, by the way, back up a little bit. Actually, the, actually the word for commandment or charge is paragelia, which means announcement, proclaiming, 
giving a message to or a charge of commanding. Good. Uh, in para being around, like periscope around, and angelia being announcement, right? Like the same root word is is uh, the heralding and so forth. Yeah, uh, same kind of idea. All right. Well, I'd never looked up the Greek for either of those. I especially like the, the telos thing, you know. The Christ is the telos of the law for in Romans 10.4, right? He's the purpose of the law. If you've seen Christ, then you've seen the Ten Commandments. Right? All right. So uh, let's move on to uh, Bethany in 1 Corinthians 9. You can uh, read more than verse 25 through 27 if you want the uh, yeah. Or no, either one. You're fine. You're your choice. Now, I have never looked up the word for aim there, but I'm guessing it's not telos. But does anybody want to look it up real quick in the Greek? Maybe it is telos, but I doubt it. So, you know, I think we've talked about this verse before, but when he says, so that I might not be disqualified, the Greek is actually so that I might not be a cracked vessel. And the metaphor is actually coming from, uh, he's assuming the readers know the Bible, right? And there's a big theme, there's lots of meta-narratives and little mini-narratives and themes and word pictures that go through the Bible. And one of the, the themes that goes through the whole Bible is that God is the creator and we're the cratees, and therefore he's the potter, and we're the clay, right? And in a, uh, one of the main things that archaeologists use to study various cultures is the ceramic or pottery fragments they find because they're one of the few things that last for tens of thousands of years. You know, like in our own, like if you dig up one of our landfills from this century, 5,000 years from now, there'll be lots of plastic that's still not degraded, right? But pottery's like that. And so um, when, the, when Paul talks about to Timothy, uh, when he says, if a man cleanses himself from these things, he'll be an honorable vessel, he's going back to Old Testament metaphors and word pictures because in a house, there was the like best pottery that you use for serving the special guest and so forth. Then there was the everyday pottery, but then there was also dishonorable pottery. Normally the dishonorable pottery would be pottery that got cracked or dropped or broken, but then it was still repairable, but it wouldn't be like I wouldn't, you know, have it out when, you know, Teresa and Amber come to dinner because my wife and I might want to put out the good dishes. You know, but you know, you know, instead of of course, we probably put out paper plates, but and, That's reality. and break and bake cookies. <laughs> but uh, but uh, no, but uh, no. So you might you might have like a special occasion versus you might have like just the uh, you know the plastic dishes you got from your grandmother when you're in college or whatever. And uh, so the the like the chamber pot and the spittoon. And there's lot, there were lots of vessels for less honorable uses, and that's what Paul's actually appealing to. He's saying, um, I, I buffet my body and I make it my slave, lest after I've preached to others, I should become a dishonorable vessel in the house of the Lord. Right? 
that's actually when, a, when a, in ministry, when they say a man has disqualified himself from ministry, he might step down uh, for two years or five years or something like that just to kind of get reoriented or whatever. Uh, the two the two mistakes the church makes is that when men when men who are God is using fall into troubles, the church shoots them and never gives them a path of restoration, and they're just gone and lost to the body of Christ. That's one mistake. The other mistake is they just stand up in front of their congregation and you know there was a major evangelist who I won't name, approximately nine, late eighties who. Uh, they said he had preached the gospel probably to more people in the world than any man who'd ever lived. And they, they used to say you'd feel the anointing of the Spirit when you started to pull into the, the parking lot of this big church. And, you know, he had TV contracts and all this stuff. But then he was on national news for, for certain immoralities and so forth. And, you know, he just cried in front of his church and said, I'm sorry, and kept ministry. Although the group that he belonged to asked him to step down for a few years and go through their restoration process, but he was unwilling to do it. And interestingly enough, about six months to a year later, the whole same thing happened again, and he was on the front page of newspapers all over. And today he's still on TV late at night, and he has this teeny little ministry compared to what he once had. But I think God might have restored a lot had he just stepped down uh, he was actually a member of, the, of a church called the Assemblies of God, which is the largest uh, denomination, in, la largest non-Catholic denomination in the world, lar largest Protestant denomination in the world by far. And he and their program only takes two years, but he was unwilling to do it. Does that make sense? So Paul's, that's actually what Paul's talking about in these verses, like, lest I should get become a cracked vessel. Yeah. For the, for the war that the yeah, so if you've never um, looked at Romans 8 and Galatians 5 together, both of them are about like what it means to walk in the spirit versus to walk with your mind set on the flesh. And that's a lot of what we go through. Like Christians want like, um, and I hate to pop your bubble, but this whole thing of casting out demons and stuff, which we believe in and we practice, some people, when they hear that the first time, they want it to be like a little cure-all. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm going to get these demons cast out of me, and then I don't have to study or, or uh, get, you know, put in the time to get good grades in my math class. <laughs> you know, that's just not, that doesn't work like that. You know, there's a flesh and a spirit, and there is a proper, a lot of times how you know something needs deliverance is when it's not the normal activity of what the Bible describes the flesh as being. But, uh, you know, there's, there's times when I'll actually sit in a, in a difficult marriage counseling situation and just say, listen, at the end of Galatians 5, Paul says, but if you bite and devour one another, care, take care lest you be consumed by one another. Like, you can't expect God's going to help this situation if you just want to sit around and have a childish fleshly fight together which lots of lots of married little marital spats and other kind of spats and can be like if you just want to indulge your childishness and, and go crazy with your emotions and so forth 
that's, you know, first thing you need to, to study is like what it means to walk in the spirit versus walk in the flesh. Because if you, you know, you put your, you know, your mindset on the, on the spirit, it says you won't carry out the desires of the flesh. And sometimes people want like some kind of magic cure to come out of deliverance or something, but it's, it's not a magic cure. It, you know, like you have to treat, you know, 2 Corinthians uh, 7, 1 says, using these promises, what he'd been talking about in the previous chapter, let us cleanse ourselves of all defilements of flesh and spirit. One of the most important things to grow up in is to, is to learn how to discern what is the sin nature versus what is actually spiritual demonic stuff. And you have to treat both appropriately. Does that make sense? You can't really... You know, that's just, that's like uh, when, with overcoming disease. The reason uh, most doctors, the first thing they want to try to do is diagnose what it is right. What happens if you don't diagnose it right? You can kill them. Yeah, you can kill them, but you don't know what you're dealing with. So you, what you're trying may be counterproductive. Mm -hmm. Hopefully not kill them, <laughs> but, but it could get there. I mean, hopefully... Uh, that was uh, hopefully that's just uh, not that often, <laughs> but no, that's a, actually a good insight. But uh, the ma major context is you have to diagnose things right if you're going to treat them right, right? Is that correct? And that's true of in the spiritual realities. All right, let's go on to uh, who has Philippians three three eighteen through twenty. Go ahead, Byron. No, you're no, you're good. I I might have put the wrong verses. Yeah, I don't. I can't even remember what I was going for in that particular. I guess I would be going for the word end. I've always hated that verse. I have a love-hate relationship with that one whose God is their belly. Because <laughs> of course, as I you can tell from my credentials. So. You got some worship <laughs> <laughs> Breaking some of those are breaking bags. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, and the Galatians five is mindset on spiritual things, where this is mindset on earthly things. Yeah, uh, really, the context of Philippians three, the whole chapter, is this: he's basically talking about uh, what our goals should be. And I may have meant to refer to some other scriptures. I can't even remember because I did this teaching two weeks ago. Um, it, tell us is the word end there? Okay, so that's a goal, goal word. So probably I had that in mind. But I, I, want, I would say look at it in the whole context because in the first few verses he talks about the true circumcision versus the, in the Greek it means mutilation. What he's basically saying is that uh, circumcising only of the flesh was the covenant sign of Israel, but it doesn't do anything. What we really have to have is a current circumcised heart through the gospel. And then he goes on to say that the goal of, of everything is to press on into Christ-likeness. And so he, he talks at, in the first, like, verses uh, uh, 4 through oh, 8 or so of, you know, if he were to stand on religious credentials, he probably could more than anyone else. But he's saying that's nonsense. That's a loss. He uses the word rubbish and even scubalon. 
Uh, he, he, he says, I counted as nothing. He dismisses it several ways to say righteousness obtained by performance base is just nothing before God. It's garbage. It's worse than nothing. It's, it's a stench. Then he goes on to say, like, uh, but through the gospel, I forget what lies behind, and I reach forward to what lies ahead, the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Then he goes on to say, so that I might apprehend that for which he apprehended me. So think about this. Now, when, when did, does anyone know about, like, where was Paul? You know, we all know that Paul was called by Christ in Acts chapter 9, right? So... No one knows for sure how old he was, but uh, chances are he was 20-ish to 30-ish. So when, what, when is Paul writing Philippians? What's that? Well, he, she said the end. What else do we know? What did you say? On his way to kill Christians. No, not when he's writing Philippians 3. Yeah, he's actually in jail, in Nero's jail, about to be executed. So uh, it's one of his, what's called prison epistles. So in the last year or two of his life, you know, like this is not the young Paul is all I'm trying to say. This is a guy who's planted churches, who's been the most effective minister in the history of Christianity. And he says, I count everything up till now as lost. I forget what lies behind. So what is, what is meant by forgetting what lies behind? This is kind of an, this is all important about setting goals. Why 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 is that important? If you dwell on the past, you won't move forward. So thinking yeah, if you dwell on the past, you won't move forward. But think of two ways you can relate to the past. One is like you can relate to your past what accomplishments, right? Learning from your mistakes. And the other one is you could. Re- relate to your past mistakes right right and both of those can be a trap right sometimes if you relate you know uh relate to your past accomplishments there's a reason why even in sports a lot of teams don't stay at the top very long maybe a decade and when we and we call that a dynasty if they win the playoffs three times or five times or something, right? Right. Mm-hmm. So lots of people say it's harder to keep success than to get there in the first place, right? And to stay on top. But you know, one of the things you have to do in terms of your perspective is um, in the in the worldly goals there are there are endpoints like a championship. But in Christ, what is the end point? Becoming more Christ-like. So is there ever an end point? No, you haven't arrived. Did you ever win the championship of being the most, perhaps Paul was the most Christ-like person in the world. Perhaps he was, I don't know. Uh, you can ask Jesus that when you get to heaven. Let me know as soon as he tells you. <laughs> I'm Paul. going first. <laughs> no, but I might not have gotten around to that one by the time you get there. <laughs> Just call me up. Okay. Have your people call my people. We'll do lunch and you can right. tell me what Jesus had to say about it. All right. But, you know, um, maybe Amber will know by then. Uh, no, so, like, I don't know if he was the most crisis. <laughs> I don't know if he, he was the most Christ-like person. 
let's get off of that. <laughs> but what I do know is what? What do we do know about his Christ-likeness? He makes it very clear in the chapter. It was genuine. Okay, it's genuine. What, we not, what, what am I looking for? In, no. No, not his Christ-likeness. His, um. It what? No, but his, what he's saying, the main point of the chapter is my Christ likeness is not complete. That's the main point of the whole chapter. And so I can become more like Christ. And that's one of the, if, if you haven't ever thought about this, I would really encourage you to think about this. This has been the number one way, uh, you know, my wife helps me grow in the Lord in lots of ways. This has been the number one way I've helped her grow in the Lord in, in the 43 years we've known each other. We've been married 35 years. We were friends 43 years ago. Uh, it, the main way I've helped her is to understand that if you want to really do this Christian life right, you've got to learn to love the process. Because there's no arrival in this life. The destination is Christ-likeness. And I haven't met anyone that's perfectly Christ-like. Frankly, uh, no offense to me or my pastors Ray, or I've never even met anyone who's all that Christ-like, including myself, when you compare it to Christ. So what he's actually trying to say about the past, when you, if you look at the past accomplishments, so let, let's do, I'm going to do this on the board, so can we get rid of this? What is this, all this about? Uh, let's do it. I'll do it on this board over here. But whatever we talk about with goals, remember, the number one goal has to be to become more like Christ and to know him deeper. 1 John 2, 6, if anyone says he knows him, he ought to walk in the same manner in which he walked. Right? Do you realize, like, I'm, a lot of you know I'm kind of outgoing and I meet people in the check out lines at grocery stores and everything else but that's partly because uh, you know I was actually a very shy and timid person when I came to Christ I'm partly the way that way because I am deathly aware of when I'm in aisle 27 looking at the cookies and I let the little lady get her cart by and say something gracious to her that's the closest she's ever going to come possibly to meeting Christ You know, like, that's like, like, just think where you work. You know, you might be the only Christian that lots of people know. And how you conduct yourself, you know, in terms of being on time, your work ethic, how you control your emotions, what you do with your tongue, so forth. And, and not in, in, First and foremost, most people have to assume assumptions that are wrong about God. I, I try to make sure I don't give a legalistic caricature that Christians are no fun. Because I'm like a mold. I'm a fun guy. That's Cindy, one of Cindy's favorites. Uh, <laughs> um, no, like I want, I want them to think Christians are gracious. Right? People wonder, well, why do you, why do you be, tip 50% and more? 
I usually tip around 30 to 40% if the service is bad, 50 to 100% if it's good. Why? Because they already think God is a nasty, killjoy, chintzy, uh, you know, going to hold their sins against them. Right? And guess what? You know, uh, I've had people start coming to our church just because they overheard us talking uh, in a Bible study at Freshes. They know we're Christians. You know, like we all go out on Tuesday night somewhere or whatever, and then the tip is lousy. That's what they think Christians are already. You'd, you'd ask any waiter or waitress, and they'll tell you the Sunday after church crowd is the worst tippers and the most demanding service. Why? Because we think God is demanding. Why not? Wouldn't it be grace if you over-tipped someone who gave lousy service? Yeah. Right? Does, does God tip us according to our performance? I hope not. <laughs> Some of us would be in real trouble. All of us, right? Just, just leave a All right, let's go. Let's move on. Uh, let's let's quickly uh, read the next few verses. So let's see. Has Liz read yet? Why don't you read First Thessalonians four there? Uh, well, um, Sam Chen Poon, you read Second Corinthians five nine. Let's just read the ones that are on the page because we want to get. We got to move on. Let's just read the last three. Robbie, you do 2 Timothy 1, 12 through 14. Or no, you do Colossians 3, 1 through 3. And then uh, John Luke, 2 Timothy 1, 12 through 14. They're on the page. So just if you're not ready, just go on the page. So I'll tell the translation before you read. Uh, New translation. Okay, New Living. So the NLT, New Living Trans, plays right into my hands by using, instead of the word ambition, make it your goal. <laughs> Good choice. <laughs> plays right into my hand of saying that the word goal is a biblical word. Robbie, uh, read the next one, will you? Hey, uh, Jonathan, read, because uh, I accidentally skipped 2 Corinthians 5, 9, so we'll have you read that one. But, Liz, look it up in the NLT. You have an NLT? Or, well, you just have it on your phone. But look up 2 Corinthians 5, 9 and see if they use, what they do for ambition there. In other words, read it, read it whatever translation you want, Jonathan, but, but let's see what, if NLT uses the word goal instead of ambition. Yeah, so it does use goal for, instead of ambition. So good, plays right into my hand. Because what the NLT is going for, and NLT is a, a type of translation called a dynamic equivalence, and they're actually going for even simpler English than, say, the ESV or the NIT have. Or the NIV, I mean, not NIT. NIV. NIT is a tournament in basketball. Uh, Jonathan, uh, go ahead and uh, give us... Uh, Give us that verse, 2 Corinthians 5, 9, from the page. Therefore, we also have as our ambition, he has done, whether good or bad. 
Good. I wish we had time to discuss a little bit of grace about the final judgment and all that, but we're, we're going to skip that for now. Uh, who has Colossians 3, 1 through 3? Anybody? Which one do you have, John, John Luke? Which one did I tell you? Go ahead and do that. Then, Deanna, you do Colossians. So to me, retain and guard are kind of goal words, right? You know, like you might have a goal to not let your investments get stolen, <laughs> right? Like, you know, we, you guard certain things in your life, don't you? So, Deanna, give us uh, Colossians 3, 1 through 3. Okay, so really one thing I just want, I just want you to get a couple points out of this and then we'll move on to the next section because we really took too much time, but uh, we ended up, I'm glad we did that. I hope you've, I hope that's something you've thought about before. There's a real uh, necessity in the Christian life to think about past, present, future. If you've never thought about that, read through Exodus and Numbers and Leviticus and so forth again with the view that when God delivered Israel, one of their problems was they kept taking the wrong perspective on the past when they got in difficult situations, right? Would that we were back in Egypt? You know that your flesh has a spin on who you were before you were in Christ. And so many people will actually have like experiences with God and start off in a group or a discipleship relationship or something in a certain zealousness but they'll lose their way without getting through the promised land because they start in, in a diff, God has to take you through difficult situations. It's, life is actually always about retaining God's perspective on what you're going through. Believe me, ungodly people in your life have perspectives they want to put on you. Right? And uh, hopefully you, you keep yourself in a kind of place through Scripture, through, you know, the, the reason it's important to kind of discern is how I'm thinking, bringing joy, peace, love, the, the, the flow of the Holy Spirit in my life. Because if it's not bringing that, then you're probably not thinking correctly. Right? You know, I had a, a, I had a struggle for many years with battling discouragement and depression. And I knew that that was because of wrong perspectives and attitudes that I was wrestling with. And when I got free to, to, to not only see, but to, to be in God's perspective, that it would be gone. And it was. Right? So that's really important. And then keep in mind that goals need to be in Christ and eternal. Like your goal, like I set goals when I was in college. I had been uh, a flunky in high school. I graduated with a 2.5. I was not in the top 50% of my high school class. I was not in the college prep classes. <laughs> like in other words, I was in all the classes they give in high school for people who they don't expect to go to college. And then, you know, the Lord called me and called me to go to college. But I was accepted to college on a probationary status. 
But during that first quarter, I began to read the Bible. By the end of the first quarter, shortly thereafter, uh, not only had I gotten baptized in the Spirit, but I started getting delivered from demons. I quit drugs and started growing in the Lord. And that was when I read The Disciplined Life for the first time. And so I set a goal for the second quarter I was in college to, to quit getting C's. Now, that was just one goal among all my other goals. I also had a goal that I wouldn't uh, do my secular homework until I read the Bible three hours each day. And I made provision for that goal that that goal went out the window during the, the week before finals and during finals. <laughs> In other words, I didn't read the Bible three hours a day during those two weeks at all through my four years of college, but I did every other week of the, of the quarter because I was the kind of guy who could, you know, had enough ability to really push hard and study those last two weeks and get, get my grades. But then once, you know, like goal setting, once I got all B's, which I got right away, uh, then I set a goal to start getting an occasional A. And at first, I just got some occasional A's. Then that summer, uh, would have been the summer of 75, after my freshman year, I set a goal to get uh, half B's and half A's. And so my sophomore year, that's what I did. And then my junior year, I set a goal to get three A's for every B. And then my senior year, I set a goal to get all A's. But during my last four quarters of college, I took 16 classes. I got 14 A's, two B's. I didn't hit my goal. But still, I felt good because I made pretty good progress. But that would have been worthless had I not had much more important spiritual eternal goals that I was working on. I was at three and four fellowship meetings a week during all that time. I always had a job that I worked 10 or 20 hours a week uh, during that time. Uh, you know, uh, I actually went to uh, two summers because in order to keep my goals, I took 12 and 13 credit hours a quarter instead of taking 15 and 16 so that I could get A's and still grow in the Lord. Now, was that the best economic decision? No, I ended up paying because actually they charged the same amount from 12 to 18 hours for the credits. They still do that in most colleges, most universities. But I forego, I, so I left money on the table, you might speak, because there were bigger goals involved in that I, I was desperate to grow in the Lord because I had just come out of darkness. And I would say that lots of people in this room are actually at the stage of development in Christ that you should, should not bite off too much with school and other things if, if that means uh, that you could spend more time growing in the things of God. You know, I met with my pastor at least once a week, sometimes two and three times a week. I, you know, I, I had other goals of growth when I was, when I was in college, not just, not just my grades. And that's important because, you know, grades, I mean, grades later have helped me. In 2008, I needed a quick job because the recession crashed our company, and I, uh, I called up Sinclair Community College, talked to the chairman of the history department, and the humanities department, told them what kind of grades I had in graduate school and undergraduate school, and they said, if you can get those grades to us, we could use you like right now. And I went in for what I thought was going to be an interview, and they basically just said, well, this is what you'll be doing, because <laughs> they'd already decided to hire me, because I could teach every history class they have and every humanities class they have. So sometimes grades are helpful, but they're only a part. Don't measure your success like just on earthly goals is some of the point of why I went through that 
thing and in some of these verses about setting your mind on you know like if you just get better grades don't measure your growth by that in fact i don't know sydney probably wouldn't mind when i first met sydney one of our first talks was about he was about to get his first b and he never had a b before <laughs> you know but so a lot of our talks the first couple of years that i was discipling him was about like making your goals more more whole life like are you growing spiritually are you growing socially are you growing vocationally are you growing in all of your life like just getting all a's is not enough in fact there's a lot of guys out there that that are in uh, the human services departments of companies that are suspicious of people that have all a's they want to make sure you got social skills and, and team playing skills and things like that so you can't just measure your goals in worldly ways when don't just hear this teaching that you know i'm going to have make goals about my workouts and, and my diet does that make sense all right, so let's get into this as fast as we can. I'm just going to kind of throw it out there and not discuss it anymore. Because, uh, you know, actually, it turned out when we get into some of these things, I, I realized that lots of you, did, like, probably that was good for some of you, that whole thing. And uh, which is uh, something I just would encourage you to don't lose that. Like, think, and that's what Paul's going for in Philippians 3. There's lots of, that's what God's going for when he tells you the story of the children of Israel going, you know, into the promised land. Like, think in terms of, of God's perspective on things. Don't let your flesh give you the per perspectives. Lots of people have very carnal and very shallow, uh, dem even demonic sometimes, perspectives on things. The goal is to have biblical, Holy Spirit, life-giving, things that produce joy, power, insight, and all that. All right, so breaking it down. Number one, set goals for your relationship to God. We already talked about Philippians 3. They should include what we call the three delivery systems of grace. I don't have time to go through that, but all grace comes through Jesus Christ in coming to know him scripturally and experientially. And Jesus will come to you through the scriptures, the Holy Spirit, and the church. So be honest with yourself. Like if you're a little light on the Lord's day, and you're the kind of person who could, could get knocked off hitting the Lord's day every time, well, then you might need to reevaluate your job and career and school goals so that you're not going to miss the Lord's Day. That's something you should do early in your Christian life. The Lord's Day wasn't an important thing to me when I was like a pagan, but then I be, became a Christian. And most Christians, if you've grown up in evangelical circles today, you've probably never been taught much about what the Bible teaches about the Lord's Day. So make sure you get with one of the RCF leaders and study the Lord's Day. We have articles on it, Bible studies, and start rethinking your life accordingly. Holy Spirit. It's one, of course you want to make sure you're baptized in the Holy Spirit, but make sure you've had somebody take you through all the studies on it and that it's something where the Holy Spirit is powerful in your life, flowing in your life. You're filled with joy and peace a lot, always, often. 
and you're getting refilled and you know you can pray in your in your prayer language whenever you need to and want to and you're getting spiritual gifts from the holy spirit all the time like spiritual insight should come to you like in all kind of situations so uh, because no one can teach you this but you except the holy spirit but Jesus was aware when the power went out from him, and you want to grow in the Holy Spirit in such a way that, like, often, uh, now, the Lord doesn't do this for everybody, like, but I sometimes meet people, and I have a certain amount of insight from the Holy Spirit into who they are and what they're bound up with and so forth, sometimes before the very first talk. And sometimes God will even give me a strategy about how to bring this person forward. Sometimes you'll meet someone who's very serious about the Lord, but it's all an intellectual thing for them. They haven't had much spiritual power or experience or whatever. And so you know what normally I do in a situation like that is I just relate to them intellectually for a season, a few months, year or something, so that they realize, hey, we have a big emphasis on Scripture and Bible study more than any church I know of. In, or I've ever been around or experienced. And so uh, that we usually open the door for them to start understanding what they need to study about community, the body of Christ, discipleship, accountability, and about the person and power and ministry of the Holy Spirit. So sometimes I'll meet them on like what their strong point is and let them know that God has given us more in their strong point than he's given them. And once, because then that's that, that's what they can relate to, and that's what they can respect, and then later they'll go, "Oh, I think I want to hear what you have to say about community, or the Holy Spirit, or something." Does that make sense? So make sure you have goals to grow in Scripture study, the whole who the Holy Spirit is, and what the church is. Because you won't be fruitful unless you take all of those further. And it's not just about more scripture study. If you realize it's also about getting the right paradigms of interpretation, the right hermeneutical principles. And that's why we spend a lot of time on that. In spiritual gifts, it's not just about getting baptized in the spirit and speaking in tongues. If you're not going on to having more dynamic worship more often until getting words of wisdom and words of knowledge and, and prophetic utterances in situations. I couldn't possibly cast out demons if I didn't wasn't getting the the Holy Spirit wasn't showing me what to do in the midst of the and no, no, no could anyone else on the team does that make sense so like don't just get baptized in the Holy Spirit grow into where you know Paul says God whom I serve in my spirit Romans 1 9 like you actually want like serving God out of your the power of the Holy Spirit to be your daily reality where it says that Jesus knew the Pharisees were thinking evil in their hearts by the Holy Spirit. And he often knew what they were thinking. And that's not a fantasy. That's normal biblical Christianity. Jesus purposely was trying to be our model. And lots of very knowledgeable Christians don't have that kind of relationship with the Holy Spirit. But that's not, that's sub-biblical. That's not biblically defensible. That's just what we have in the Western world because of our, our post-enlightenment spirits of unbelief. So make sure 
you know, like the church, I have celebrating the Lord's Day, leadership development, community, uh, three ministries of all Christians. That's always a good paradigm to think about your goals. So every Christian should have a ministry to God, a ministry to the church, but especially the body you're called to. To some degree, you can help other Christians outside of the body you're called to. That You definitely should when there's opportunities. But you need to be most committed to the body you're part of or the campus ministry you're part of. And sometimes you're, you know, sometimes you're like Bob Timer where you're called to be a part of a certain church, but you're also a leader in a campus ministry. And that's that. So he's, you know, Bob is very faithful to both. But then you're also called to, to your ministry to the lost. And part of that ministry to the lost is, are, am I developing myself in those respects? Like, am I growing in terms of my knowledge of the gospel? in my ability to communicate it to different kinds of people. You know, one of the things I'm trying to consider focusing on in the next couple of years is, is I'm trying to get some time away. And one of the things I want to study is how do I, how do I help Hindus and Muslims and other false religions come to Christ more effectively? Because most of the people we lead to Christ are somewhat pre-evangelized at this point. And how do we crack the nut of getting more fruitful at people who aren't pre-evangelized? Most people who walk in our door have some Christian background, however little or skewed or, or twisted or deceived it may be. And so we're actually just helping them come to a more full conversion and sanctification and growth in some, in some cases, it's, it's the coming to help them know Christ in the first place. Others, it's just to grow. But, you know, like you should have, every Christian has a ministry to God, a ministry to the local church they belong to and other Christians whenever the opportunity arises, and a ministry to those outside of Christ. And are you, do you have goals of how you're developing? Flip over. Stewardship of God's gifts and this life. In other words, I, I try to lump some things in categories. Education, vocation. You know, it used to be uh, when my dad went to college up until about when I went to college, uh, there was originally a lot of people went to college for what was called a liberal arts education. That's what you got. That's what I got. Uh, and that can be okay, but very few of you are here for a liberal arts education. Ed, uh, unfortunately, gradually our universities have become kind of diploma mills, and they're, you know, they're trying to get you job ready. And it used to be, like my dad was hired by AT&T because he had a college degree that said he could learn. And back then, they, people stayed with a company like my dad uh, was a school teacher for a few years. He decided he wanted to have a big family, and he back in those days you couldn't have a big family on a school teacher's salary. So he was a school teacher in the state of Idaho. So they moved back to Ohio to be closer to the family. Got a job with Ohio Bell, and he and he, when he retired, he was still working for AT and T after 35 years. That doesn't, like most people don't stay more than about, the average these days is about three years. 
in uh, the average person lives in their house three years, the, and, and employers want you to hit the job running that you can do the job on day one, right? Right? So you need to take that into account, but that doesn't mean that what's called a liberal arts education isn't really valuable, and you can get one on your own. And sometimes you might want to slow down uh, college to, to, for other growth in issues. Like, if you think about it, 60s become the new 40, 80s become the new 60, and you might, uh, you know, I'm, hope, I'm 61, so I'm hoping 60 is the new 40. Uh, <laughs> you might, um, if what's, you know, like if you graduate, like people are always in a hurry to graduate, what does it really matter if you graduate when you're 21 or 25, if you're going to live to be 85 and you're going to, be productive for the Lord the whole time. You know what I'm going to retire from the ministry when I if I if my mind doesn't work anymore. You know if I have Alzheimer's in my old age, then I'll probably give up Bible teaching, <laughs> or I'll become even more confusing than I am now. <laughs> uh, you know. But until then, why would I? Like the burden of the Lord's not going to leave. So my retirement plan is first and foremost not to retire. Now, if you're in a different kind of calling, you might retire so you can do more with the ministry. I try to encourage people to get on investment plans outside your 401ks and IRAs and things so that in your 50s you can decide if you want to keep working or not. If you start putting money away in your 20s, you'll get yourself to that kind of place. And then you could say, okay, I'm not retiring, but I'm going to be a part of this church plant in the Philippines or whatever, you know, you're going to do. And I can afford to do it. You know, uh, one of, a pastor friend that I'm really good friends with, uh, who's the pastor of the Assemblies of God Church on the, on the corner, Pastor Brown, he told me when we first became friends around the year 2000 that his goal in his investments was to get so he could tell the church, I don't need the income anymore. I don't, I, I'll continue to be the pastor for free. And that's what he is now. He succeeded in that goal. And he lives in the past, the church's ministry house, and he sold his nice house in Beaver Creek so that he could get to the point where the church didn't have to pay him a salary anymore. Now, wouldn't that be a great way to do it? So, you know, Catherine and I, lots of you know, we take a very, very small salary, but we can afford to because of our investments and so forth. So, you know, education, vocation, finances, properties, investments that's not unspiritual sanctify that to christ and your goal in the long run should be to have the bible says you were bought with a price don't become slaves of men so wouldn't it be great if you could just say well i don't i don't know i guess i'm not going to work anymore because i have enough money to live off my investments for the rest of my life and i'll I'll do uh, a ministry to kids in the inner city school, whiz kids or something. Wouldn't that be great? We're in the Bahamas. <laughs> <laughs> you know, well, that's how the world thinks about it. That I would really, and if you keep thinking about it, God's going to send you to Alaska. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> I always say, Lord, I'll never go to Alaska. <laughs> I, thought, I thought you said you'd never go to the Bahamas. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I'll never go to the Bahamas. I get it right back. I'm just kidding. God would I I could be so lucky.
Closest I ever got to the Bahamas was I got these videos that show the coral reefs and the fish and stuff. It's close as I'll ever get. All right. Number two, health, diet, exercise, nutrition, sleep. So, you know, if you uh, are more lethargic starting in your 40s and 50s because you didn't manage your health well, because you ate crappy during your time at Rice State. <laughs> seems to me some people are more convictable than others. <laughs> uh, you know, that might make a difference, in, uh, but also longevity. You know, I love having a pastor who just turned 88 years old last month, and, uh, and he's still of sound mind, still drives a car, he went, you know, I went up to see him when he was in this uh, hospital kind of place because he had an operation that went bad a year or two ago. But the reason he did that operation was to stop the neuropathy that he has in his left leg from, from traveling to his right leg because he wanted to be able to continue to drive while he served the Lord the rest of his life. And so he took a big chance on an operation that might give him five more years of being able to do the systematic theology class and things like that. And the operation went bad. So I, he was in like a transitional place for like a month. But, I mean, isn't that a great way to think? Like he was basically saying, like, I can be less burdened to the church and more service to the church because if I, if I get this neuropathy in my right leg, they'll have to come pick me up in order for me to keep serving the Lord. And what he was taking a chance on was if this surgery goes right, I'll still be able to drive to visit the guy I pastor in Tampa and the people I pastor in Atlanta and the people I pastor in Dayton and so forth. Now, that's pretty good thinking when you're 88 years old, right? So, uh, you know, you might, you know, I know when you're like your age, you want to be all buff and have muscles and big pecs and all that. But how about, how about not having type 2 diabetes? How about, you know longevity. I didn't do well with that as a young Christian. I should have. Um, so you can see the talents, callings, giftedness. You know, I'm not talking about the three biblical categories of gifts, like gifts of the Spirit, gifts of leadership, and so forth, but lots of things are, you know, like I needed uh, some electronic gifts, you might say, to, uh, because I got my wife this treadmill thing for Christmas and I wanted her to be able to like, read the Bible on the screen and, I wanted, and so forth. Well, Anvesh has the gifts that he was able to set that all up for me in like, I think about one day, right? <laughs> so, and Stephen said, yeah, that was great having Anvesh because I just did whatever Anvesh said. <laughs> you know, like, yeah, so like, those are gifts that you can use for the body of Christ. So, you know, everything from music to art to electronics can be gifts that you serve Christ with. You know, uh, medical doctors. I, I, you know, I have a medical doctor friend who is also my personal doctor, and he spends a certain number of weeks uh, each year in Haiti and other missionary places because he can afford to. You know, places that they don't have doctors. And probably some of you know my friend Chris Pringer. You know the Pringers, right, to some degree. Well, of course you do now. But, um, 
But Alex's aunt, Chris, uh, went to Bowling Green, became a Christian in college, became a doctor, never practiced medicine in the normal way. She signed up with this missionary organization, and she's been a doctor her entire adult career in Bangladesh. Uh, where they, you know, they don't have doctors, and they don't, and it's one of the poorest countries in the world. And she could have been a wealthy doctor, but instead she was uh, hopefully used of Christ in many ways. 